Hello, and welcome back to another Meet the Investigators podcast with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. I'm Amy, and this month we have a really interesting chat with our Malaysian member. My name is Aidila Raza. I'm the Special Reports Editor at Malaysia Kini. I do any sort of investigative or special reports, in-depth reporting. Adila spoke from Kuala Lumpur with ICAJ reporter Shila Ralechi. Tell me a bit about yourself and how, why did you decide to become a journalist? I get this question a lot and I have to really go back to the story of a history class when I was 14. We were learning about kind of the road to independence, Malaysia's independence, and there was a small part in the history book about the role of journalists. And I remember at the time just thinking just how cool that was that these people wrote things that made such significant change. And I thought that, yeah, this is something I really wanted to do. And yeah, I I never really changed. I always wanted to be a journalist and eventually became one. Despite her grand ambitions, now is not the best time to be a reporter in Malaysia. In July, Adila's news organisation, a partner of ICIJ, Malaysia Kini, found itself in the headlines, fighting a government court case. It's, it's a very tricky, <laughs> tricky time to talk about this because just yesterday I was in court supporting my editor-in-chief who's in court for contempt, not because of something he wrote or did or whatever that we did as his journalist, but because of something um, readers left as comments. So it is a very tricky time for press freedom in Malaysia. In June, Malaysia Kini published a story about the courts reopening after the country's lockdown in response to the coronavirus. Just as they would for any story, the news outlet let readers leave their comments. It was a simple news report about the opening, but the Attorney General reacted fiercely when some readers posted comments criticising the judiciary. Attorney General Idris Harun has filed an ex parte application to initiate contempt of court proceedings against Malaysia Kini. Idris alleged that Malaysia Kini had erred in facilitating the publication of these comments, which were unwarranted and demeaning attacks on the judiciary. Malaysian law doesn't explicitly require news outlets to moderate readers' comments, but Malaysia Kini's editor was charged with contempt and brought to court. Stephen Garn risked imprisonment. Here's Garn speaking with Kini TV at the time. In this contempt of court case, uh, it's so fast that uh, we have to prepare for the worst. It's not the first time Malaysian media has been under attack. In the 10 years that Adila has been a reporter, press freedom has had many ups and downs. Starting from maybe the 80s, we started to have really heavy regulations on the press. The Printing and Presses Act would require us to have licenses and things like that. And that really put real chill on freedom on reporting, this massive censorship, even self-censorship because of this. So people were just really afraid of losing their license and losing livelihoods. And there were various times soon after the law was enacted that it was imposed and, and newspapers really lost their license and newsrooms had to shut down. So since then, it has been a very much a very uh, kind of muted type of journalism. So always finding a way to tell the story without being so overt that they can catch you and do something like that. Yeah, so that has been the case for Malaysian journalism since then. And I, I, I feel sometimes that, yes, there will be uh, periods where we'll be a bit more brave 
and we think that we might be safer and then we would try to push the envelope and then something happens and people get scared again and there's a whole series of such censorship again and that might take another decade to come back out. Something like the latest case against Malaysia Kini, which Gan says will have a chilling effect no matter the outcome. You know, whatever decisions they're going to make will have tremendous impact on not just on Malaysia Kini, but also on media organisation, on uh, millions of Malaysians who are users of uh, social media. Six weeks after the publication and Garm were charged, a panel of seven judges reserved its decision. In August 2020, judgment is still pending. Does it mean that now is a bad time for um, Malaysia's press freedom? Yeah, it feels like that because one by one, the small cases are coming up again, which we have not had for like 10 years. When I first started about 10, 11 years ago, there were more consistent uh, examples of persecution you would have people being hauled up to the police stations over what some small thing or the other. Um, and then we wouldn't have so much of that anymore. And then when the uh, Pakatan Harapan government came in, there was not any of that at all in the 22 months uh, as, uh, that I recall. And then now that we have this new slash old government, <laughs> It's all coming back. So we've got a book that got banned, journalists being um, investigated for reporting on um, the lockdowns, things that you wouldn't think would ever be there. It's happening all over again. The current government has used the coronavirus health emergency as an excuse to limit access to information and tighten controls on journalists. It's a situation several ICIJ partners have faced in the wake of the pandemic. We are unable to access lots of uh, press conferences or events where we could actually get information. Information is very limited. And yeah, I think it's happening around the world, isn't it? That they're using COVID laws to to clamp down on dissent or any sort of critical reporting. Since you started, have you personally experienced threats or any kind of issues with law enforcement because of your work? I think everyone at least in Malaysia, Kini accepts that we are being watched at some level. When I first joined, I was kind of reminded that, yeah, so the special branch will have a a file on you. So you just have to kind of accept that and then maybe live your life in a certain way. I I mean, I'm quite careful about what goes on social media, for example, because I know it might come back somehow. So it does make you live your life a different way. Like what, for example? What are the things that you pay attention to? Yeah, some of, the, some of them are quite silly, right? Like how I, I dress or, or maybe going out to a, a bar or something like that. I would be quite careful about those things. So speaking about stories, what's the investigation you're most proud of? Last year was the 50th anniversary of this um, riot that happened in Malaysia. It happened on this date, May 13th, and it was a inter-ethnic riot. And it was probably uh, the biggest of its kind in Malaysia, and it had the most lasting impact. Because of that, lots of policy change, and um, it resulted in having affirmative action which caused kind of systemic racism and things like that. So we've been grappling over the consequences of these riots. After Malaysia became independent in 1957, the hostility between the Chinese living in the cities and the poor Malays in rural areas grew stronger. The Malays began to demand measures that would grant them rights and privileges over other groups. 
on May 13, 1969, after a Chinese-led party performed well in a local election, tensions rose and the two ethnic groups clashed. People from mostly the Malay community uh, and the Chinese community were just basically killing each other in the streets and a few hundred people died. It was really something that, that scarred the nation. The causes of it has been heavily debated. Um, some people believe it, it was manufactured for uh, political reasons because there were some political problems then and then following from that riot, there was a change of prime minister, things like that. As a result of those riots, the relationship between these two communities have always been kind of uh, very thorny. And also as a result of the riots, the policymakers believe that, okay, this was also because of economics and class and because the Malay society, uh, Malay community were um, underprivileged, even though they were considered indigenous. So we will therefore have this affirmative action siding with the Malay community. And this continues to this day and it has caused a lot of problems in Malaysia because it's the Malays are a majority and this is basically state-sponsored um, discrimination. The riots resulted in the creation of pro-Malay policies that still persist today. For many in Malaysia, the riots remain a painful memory. We went through all the declassified documents and papers, lots of books and things like that, and talked to people who were alive at the time and who witnessed the riots and what had happened, and put it in context to understand what had happened and, and what happened after. After we published that, lots of people told me, and even to this day, occasionally people would be like, oh, I recognize your name, you're the one who did this investigation. And they would tell me that it helped them have a conversation with their parents about these things, which no one ever talked about before. There was a document that was released by the government, like a white paper, immediately after the riots. But soon after that, it increasingly became something that was suppressed. Even to this day, it's not even in the history books, even though it's such an important incident in Malaysia. You were not uh, allowed or to talk about it in public. Children don't learn about it in school. And often it is used by politicians to uh, threaten uh, other communities, saying that if you don't support this systemic racism, then it might happen that we might go to the streets and kill each other again. So it's always used as this political boogeyman. So Adila and her team of reporters use a combination of eyewitness evidence, documents and data to understand what really happened during those riots. The result? A multimedia investigation that readers can interact with and see where things took place. The heart of the piece that we published was actually uh, an interactive map which tracked the movement of the riot and also how it grew in scale. It's not data like numbers, as you know, but it's actually it's qualitative data and then geographical data. So those things we had to really match up as well as the time. So every time I find something in the books that would kind of mention a place, and then I would have to go back to the maps and see, um, does this make sense? Because KL has changed since then. The map now does not match the map before, so we have to check that and then find an eyewitness and then see whether the timing was about right. Eyewitnesses, obviously, they don't write down like 5 p.m. or whatever. They just remember like oh, around dusk. Uh, I remember the, the street lights were on. And so there was a lot of that kind of matching that happened. 
So what was the most difficult part of this investigation? Was it obtaining documents or talking to people? What was it? Corroboration was the most difficult, actually. When things are not discussed or published, there's a lot of myths that happen around it. So corroboration was a huge problem. Every time we found a document, and then we had to find someone who actually saw it, or at least uh, could pinpoint the geography, that we could check on a map that it's uh, something that could happen, because we were actually trying to get, do a blow-by-blow blow of what happened on that day. Even after the story was published, Malaysia Kini's work wasn't over. The team of reporters was on high alert, ready to respond to negative feedback and threats. Afterwards, the most difficult part was to just deal with the, with the feedback and the backlash. So I talked about the good thing about people actually talking about it, but it was quite, quite difficult to deal with. Like People cannot accept certain things about what had happened. We wanted to have a, a conversation between people who witnessed the riots and young people. We were going to host this roundtable discussion about it and there was uh, threats of right-wing groups wanting to kind of storm the, the place and things like that. A colleague who worked on the project had a lot of violent threats um, sent to her, so she had to lodge a police report. It kind of triggered a lot of negative backlash as well. We were told that not to host that uh, forum by police, saying that it could be seditious and therefore action could be taken against us. Uh, but we decided to go ahead anyway. <laughs> and police actually um, came around to, to cordon the area to in case the, the right-wing group came, but they never came. So, yeah, so we had to get lawyers there on standby in case I got arrested and things. What would they arrest you for? I mean, what would be the charge in that case? causing public unrest. Just because you talked about an old unrest. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Have you learned anything from this experience? Oh, one thing I really learned from this experience is that it seems like obvious that everything needs to be double, triple checked four times, whatever. But even when we did that, there were things that we didn't really anticipate. We check the facts, the facts are correct, but you don't anticipate the reactions to the story. This is one thing that we didn't really do, that I wish we did better. That we, we anticipate not just, just the reactions to the story, but also reactions to certain words that we used, headlines, pictures, like everything. Yeah, it has to be a lot more careful than just the investigation. Going forward, is that something that you will do? All the time? Yeah, so now we have checks. Uh, <laughs> we do tests um, on our stories. We have like a, a like a test audience. How do you do that? Tell me. Like if we don't hire people to, to read it or anything, we, we test with the newsroom and then we test up with our families and then we get them to test with their friends. Because obviously sometimes you're very close to the project and you think, yeah, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. And then you release it to the world and apparently there's a lot wrong with it and you didn't see. I always believe in kind of audience engagement even though uh, that also opens the floodgates to a lot of harassment. But I just feel like it's so important to, to listen because yeah, sometimes you're just really stuck in, in this bubble of the newsroom or, or this of journalists that you, you're not aware of how it translates or what other issues out there that you missed. So now that you are an editor, uh, what do you tell your reporters? Is there anything that you try to teach them? Some of the things that I learned from my editors, I tried to pass down. But one of the things that, that's crucial, I feel, is to tell the story as well and as, as whole as possible. 
I think now, because we're always rushing for, well, I don't know, because it's online and everything has to be rushed out and things, there's a um, tendency to just try to get it out even though you know the story's not there yet. So I would always try to say that, okay, it needs more time, take your time with it, do rewrites, look for more, ask more questions, yeah. Another thing that we are very curious about is to know what our partners enjoy reading. So recently, have you read or seen any piece of journalism that you really enjoyed? I just finished reading this book and it's not really, I don't know whether it's considered journalism, but yeah, it's called Things We Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl. It's about this woman who is kind of investigating her own rape in a way. She was raped as a teenager. And then she goes back and talks to her rapist and she's investigating it. I, yeah, I found it fascinating, like the, the, the way she captures the story and her experience with it as well. It's something that, that stuck with me. I just recently finished it. And I feel like if there's a way that we could bring that into journalism or, or investigative storytelling in a way, that would be brilliant, yeah. That's just one idea Adila has for improving investigative journalism. The ambitious reporter also hopes we can learn to investigate historic facts and weave it into our reporting. I had a friend who recently published something about uh, how Jakarta came to be, and then she is kind of into this journalism and history intersection. So he, she calls it like history telling. And I, I think that's brilliant because it's great that we can talk about what's happening now, but there are lots of things that happened before that were never investigated, but we have a chance to do now. Yeah, absolutely. That's it for this month's episode of Meet the Investigators. I really hope you enjoyed it. This episode was produced by my colleague, Shiller Alecci, and myself, Amy Wilson-Chapman. As always, please send us your feedback at social at icij.org. And don't forget to tell your friends. If you can, please share the episode on social media and use the hashtag MeetTheInvestigators to let people know. Thanks for listening. Until next month.